All right. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. How many of you have heard that before? Right? Probably most everyone in here. That's a pretty common proverb. Well, that proverb wound up being kind of the, the life lesson for my brother Justin during his junior year of high school. Now, he absolutely hates when I tell the story, but he lives in Tennessee, and chances are he's not going to listen to this podcast. So we're safe. <laughs> but on the off chance, I'm sorry, Justin. I'll beg for forgiveness later. Anyway, so here we are, junior year of high school. And uh, my brother, as most teenagers, he was really excited to get his driver's license. He was also one of those guys who, like, the minute he turned 16, the morning of his birth, 16th birthday, he goes down to the DMV to get his uh, driver's test. He actually failed, so it was kind of a dramatic day in the Good Ballot household. But that's another story for another time, right? So he winds up getting his driver's license shortly after that, that little mark of independence for a lot of teenagers, right? Being able to drive on on my own. Now, here's the problem, though. Even though my brother had only been driving for a few months, in his own estimation, he was a modern-day Duke of Hazard, blazing down the gravel roads of West Virginia. No one could catch him. He was invincible. That's just how he was. He thought he was a very, very excellent driver. Uh, that was, I, I know, I know. That in his own self-estimation, uh, he was driving around, cruising in his blue mid-90s Chevy Blazer, and boy, you know, he thought he was hot stuff, right? So he's driving around all these country gravel roads back in the country where we were living at the time. And before long, my dad gets a phone call from some of our neighbors out there. And they said, hey, just so you know, we kind of saw this blue Chevy Blazer flying by at like 60 or 70 miles an hour on these gravel roads. So before long, my dad has, you know, a heart to heart with his son. You don't want to hear that as a parent of a teenager, right? So my dad sits down and he's like, lay off the lead foot. Well, as with most teenagers, what happens, right? One ear out the other. And he's before long going back, right, to having a lead foot. And he used to do it a lot when I was in the car because he knew it really freaked me out and I didn't like it. Until one day, one day, I had enough. I'm like, slow down right now. You're driving crazy. You're going to hurt us. To which he responded with the now infamous words in our family, you have nothing to worry about. I'm the gravel king. The gravel king. Uh-huh. Let's just get something straight. When you're 16 years old and you've been driving for only a few months, you're the king of nothing, right? You're not the, you are not the king of the road. In his mind, he was the gravel king. And that was not a title or a nickname that I was given. You don't give yourself a nickname. He decided to, right? And this was a nickname that he gave himself based on a dangerous blend of pride, ignorance, and overconfidence, right? But I think we can all associate with my brother a little bit there because... Don't we all have a dangerous blend of pride, ignorance, and overconfidence in our teenage years? Sorry, teenagers. But it's, it's you know, that's a lot of us identify with that. So uh, Gravel King decides to go out on a drive one day, and uh, he's coming back just two weeks later after he made this remark from hunting, and the Gravel King got deposed, okay? A, a, a turn decided to fight back against the Gravel King. So he met his match, and he's rounding this bend about 50 miles an hour. He starts fishtailing really bad. He goes into a ditch, and his blazer flips three times, right? Uh, thankfully, miraculously, God was protecting him, and he didn't have as much of a scrape or a cut. He walked away completely unharmed from this physically, uh, emotionally, I think he's still bruised because he's a little sensitive when I call him Gravel King to this day, but that's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's okay. 
but <laughs> in this moment, uh, my brother, that was, that was a hard day, right? That was a hard day. Why? Because he, he failed. He was humbled in that moment. He thought he was really good at something. He'd been bragging about something, and the rug just gets completely ripped out from under him, and he got absolutely humbled in that moment. And you want to know what the hardest part of the day was for him? The hardest part was pulling out his cell phone and calling my dad, right? Because at that point, he had to face his failures. He couldn't sweep it under the rug. He couldn't hide it. He couldn't throw, you know, uh, some type of tarp over it and pretend it didn't happen. There's no way to get around it. He totaled his car, and now he had to call dad to come pick him up. And he was afraid because he was feeling a strange mixture of fear, of uh, just sadness, of confusion, of just all, all these different emotions in this moment. And, and he's so afraid of disappointing my dad. He's also afraid of how my dad's going to respond in that instance. I think we all understand those emotions. We've all felt that weird mix of guilt and shame and disappointment and fear whenever we've made a major mistake in our lives. We know what that feels like. But my dad responded with absolute grace when my brother called him. My dad's first reaction wasn't to chew him out that he totaled a car. The first reaction was to make sure that his son was safe, right? Now, sure, there were some consequences that came later about having to repay to get a new car or uh, driving a little differently for a few months. But the story was my dad's grace, not my dad's anger and punishment of my brother. So the gravel king lost his crown that day, but he gained an important lesson in humility. I think we can all sympathize with that. Like I said, we've all had those moments where we failed. We've all had those moments when we've made a major blunder and we don't know what exactly to do next and we're afraid of confronting our failure head on. And tonight in particular, we're going to talk about a guy named Peter who had just had his gravel king moment. In a moment of spiritual pride and misplaced self-confidence, Peter made a bold assertion that he found out that he actually couldn't back up. So imagine this. The setting is the Mount of Olives. It's the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed and arrested. And actually, it's just about an hour before that. And Jesus gathers his 11 disciples together to pray with him. And he looks at them, and with sadness in his eyes, he looks over and he gives them a sad declaration. He says to them, by the end of tonight, you will all betray me. You'll all desert me. You'll all renounce your love for me. And you'll stop following me. In that moment, 10 of the disciples had the sense to keep their mouths shut. But Peter opens up his mouth. And what does he say? Puts his foot right in it. He says, no. He goes, even if all of them fall away, I never will. Implicitly saying, I love you more than the other 10 disciples. They might fall away, but I never will. Jesus tries to help him dig himself out of his hole a little bit. He says, no, Peter, before the end of the night, you're going to deny me three times by the time the rooster crows in the morning. To which Peter ups the ante and responds, no, Jesus, you don't know anything. No, I will die for you before I would do that. I'll even die. What a bold assertion to make. But sadly, we know that it was one that wasn't true because we know the end of the story. What happens by the end of that night? Well, as Jesus gets arrested and they go to the temple, or they go to the court of the high priest and Jesus is having his mock trial, Peter's hiding outside. And before long, people start to identify him and say, hey, aren't you one of those Galileans? Aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? To which he denies Jesus three times and says, no, I don't know the man. 
By the third time, we actually find out that he calls a curse down on himself using four-letter explicitives and says, I don't know the man. Peppered with terrible language to make his point. And in that moment, it says, in his moment of failure, it says that he just happened to make eye contact with none other than Jesus himself. And as those words fell off of his lips, Peter realized what he had done. He realized the significance of his failure. He breaks down, he runs away, and he weeps. That's what happened with Peter. Now, if we listen to that denial, when we listen to that moral failure, that's about as bad as it can get, right? That's significant. That's impactful. That's heavy. So the question tonight that we're going to answer is this. How did Peter respond to his spiritual failure? How did Peter recover from such a major moral blunder? And you know, this is an incredible, incredibly important question for all of us to consider because the reality is this. Whether uh, now or in the past or sometime in the future, we're all going to make a misstep in our lives. We're all going to have a moment where we Don't live as we should following Christ. And in those moments, how do we respond? How do we recover from that? How do we overcome spiritual failure? And the significance of this kept coming to my mind as I was remembering a conversation I just had a month ago while I was down in Mexico. I was meeting one-on-one with a a, a young man who was actually a missionary kid for his entire life. But as we're sitting down and I'm talking with him, he starts crying and he just says to me, God is could never forgive me if you understood all the mistakes that I've made. He just said, I've messed, God God could never love me. I'm beyond God's love, right? He'd made some mistakes. He'd fallen spiritually. But he was at a point where he said, there's no way I can ever come back from this. I'm done. God's done with me. And he's just weeping in that moment. And tonight, I honestly don't know where everyone here is. Maybe tonight... You're thinking right now of something in your life where you failed. You've made a mistake. You've sinned. You've had a major moral blunder. And maybe you've been trying to hide from Jesus because you're just feeling so overwhelmed by the guilt and the shame of your mistake. Maybe there's something in your past that's never been resolved and it just haunts you. And you feel completely locked in with those feelings of guilt and shame and there's nothing you can do to shake those chains. Maybe at some point in your life, you feel like you've denied Jesus. I've talked to a lot of people that say, doesn't that mean that there's no way I can go to heaven? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Does that mean I'm going to hell? I am so confused. Can God ever love me? Or maybe right now God's bringing a sin or an addiction or some type of moral failure to your mind that you've been trying to hide, you've been trying to cover, you've been trying to distract yourself from, but it hasn't worked. You haven't had freedom. And Jesus is pleading with you, come to me. When we feel like failures, how can we move past our failure to find forgiveness and freedom? That's what we're going to be discovering tonight. So to do that, we're going to have to go to the book of John in the chapter 21. This is the, pro, this is the epilogue. This is the end to the book of John. And it resolves that tension of what happens to Peter? Jesus has already died. He's been uh, resurrected. But now, before the book of John ends, we have to learn what happens to Peter. Did, did he make a comeback? Did he recover? Well, we're going to see his recovery tonight in verses 1 through 17. But I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 7. 
1 through 6, actually. It says this, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee, and he revealed himself in this way. So this is the third time Jesus is appearing to his disciples. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, well, we will go with you. Then they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. (laughs) He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So we'll start with verses one through six and get back to the rest later. But in this section, notice how this passage starts. Jesus is walking on the beach of the Sea of Galilee. He spots some fishermen in their boats and he has a conversation with them. Sounds a lot like what we talked about last month, right? When Jesus called his first four disciples. It should sound very similar because this is a little bit of a recommissioning. He's pulling them back. Because here's the question that should spark in our mind. If last month, we talked about how at the very beginning, Jesus takes these four disciples and he tells them, leave your boats, leave the fishing, leave your tackle and come and be my disciples. Why three years later, are they back in the boats, back with the fishing nets, back with the fishing tackle? What's happened? And I think the answer is pretty simple. The disciples aren't confident in their calling anymore. Peter and the other disciples, after they've reflected on their failure, after they've reflected on their disobedience, after they've reflected on all the things that are happening, they're not even sure that Jesus wants them on the team anymore. What are they doing? They're running away. They're trying to run away from their calling. They're trying to run away from their mistakes. They're trying to run away from all the things that they now regret. So one day, feeling overwhelmed with guilt and shame, Peter just says, I'm giving up and I'm going back to fishing. And seven of the disciples say, okay, we're coming along with you. In these first few verses, Peter exemplifies the wrong response to moral failure and spiritual failure. He runs away. So point number one, how do we rightly respond? Refuse to run away. We have to refuse to run away. Facing failure is profoundly painful. No one says, yes, I get to face my failures and my sins and admit that in front of everybody. That's so exciting and so fun. It's not a fun or pleasant thing. It's not fun to face our failures head on. And Peter is so ashamed he doesn't want to, so what does he do? He tries to run away. He's running away from his failures. He's running away from his mistake, his sin. He's running away from repentance. And ultimately, he's running away from Jesus. Instead of going to Jesus to confess his sin and ask for his forgiveness, he's running to distractions to numb the pain and take away all the conviction that he's feeling. He says, I'm just going to bury myself back in my old profession. I'm going to go back to my old lifestyle. I'm going to go back to what's comfortable. But Peter doesn't realize that when we try to run away from our failure, that's a race that we can never win. Because God makes it extremely clear in his word that if we are truly his children, he won't let us run forever. He's going to chase us down and find us. And you know, this isn't just a Peter problem. 
This is a problem for all of us, isn't it? I think back to the very first sin ever recorded in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3. Right after Adam and Eve sin, they disobey God, they rebel against him, they eat the fruit. What happens? God appears and they hide and run away from him. They get as far away as possible from God's presence. That in our fallen sinful flesh is our natural reaction to our sin and our failures. We flee, we run, we try to hide, we try to distract. And maybe that's something, maybe that's something that you resonate with. It happens all the time. It happens every time a person leaves a church because there was a sermon being given and they felt convicted about something going on in their lives and they don't like feeling convicted. So instead they're going to find a church where it's always positive and they always feel better because they don't really like feeling convicted about their sin. It happens every time someone starts pulling away from a spiritual mentor and kind of ducking uh, accountability calls or hanging out with them because they know they're going to press the finger in on that spot of their life where they're sinning. Uh, they don't really want that, so they try to hide and run away from it. I had a, a friend in college who I had mentored for a couple months, and after a while, we met every week, we talked all the time, but he started ducking our discipleship meetings. I was wondering what was going on, and then we finally sat down and talked about it, and he'd been trying to date a girl who was in a relationship with another guy, and just because of other things in his life, he knew he shouldn't be dating, so we were talking, and the whole reason he'd been avoiding and running away was because he knew I'd call him out, and he knew he was wrong. So he tried to run away and avoid it. This happens every time a spouse sins against their husband or wife, whether that's physically, emotionally, sexually, whatever it is, and then that spouse tries to sweep it under the rug, not confess it, harden their heart, pretend like it never happened, happens every time the Holy Spirit convicts us of a sin or an addiction, addiction or a failure in our life, whether that's maybe you lied to your boss to get out of trouble, or maybe you had too much to drink one night, or maybe you watched something immoral you know you shouldn't be watching, or maybe you were doing things that you know you shouldn't be doing, or you compromised your witness, and you feel the conviction of the Spirit, but rather than confess that sin and go to Jesus, instead you think, man, I just, I want to hide. So we go to any distraction that we can, whether that's food or television or music or working out or whatever it is, or, or just hanging out with people. We try to distract ourselves and get that out of, out of our mind and cast it far away as possible. I mean, how many people here in Wisconsin run to alcohol to numb the pain of the mistakes and the failures and the sin that they've committed in their lives? But here's the thing. We can't outrun God. Like I said, the Bible makes it clear if we're truly his kids, he's going to chase us down. He's going to do whatever he can to expose the sin and lead us to real repentance. I think about what David wrote in Psalm 32. This is the psalm that David wrote after his sin was exposed, that he had been hiding for a year after he had had an affair with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. This is the psalm, the first four, ver uh, four verses that he writes. He said, blessed is the one, joyful, happy is the one whose transgression is finally forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, when I tried to hide, when I tried to run, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. He says, as long as I tried to run, my energy was spent. I felt like your hand was upon me. I was tired. I was broken. He said, I couldn't get any relief until I turned to you, God. Running didn't help. 
It's a lot like a person who doesn't want to go to the dentist because they know they have a cavity and they're afraid of getting the cavity fixed, right? They're afraid of the pain of the root canal. So they think, I'm just going to kick this can down the road and not go to the dentist. But what happens if you don't go to the dentist and you have a cavity and you keep not going? It's going to get worse, right? It's going to spread, and then it's going to start to impact every aspect of your life. You brush your teeth, it's going to be with tears, right? You start to eat, and you can't even eat the food you like anymore. You're going to be eating milkshakes and, like, blended foods, right? That's about it. You can't chew anything anymore. Not only that, uh, you start to have toothaches that just interfere with your work because it's constantly, that pain is always there, right? That, that's foolish. No, uh, go to the dentist. Don't be afraid of the dentist. They're there to help you. They're there to get rid of the problem. Yes, Getting rid of the cavity might be a little painful, but it's going to be so much better on the other side of that because you get the, the relief that you need. The same is true with sin. If we don't confront our sin, it's going to get worse. Our joy is going to be gone. Our relationships with other people are going to be broken. And then ultimately, the spiritual discipline in our life is going to get worse. Just as you shouldn't be afraid of the dentist if you have a cavity, you shouldn't be afraid of God, of going to Jesus if there's sin in your life. And that's exactly what we see next in our passage. So many times we're afraid to go to God because we have a wrong understanding of who God is. I think our spiritual enemy oftentimes whispers lies in our mind that God is this terrible, awful person who won't understand. He doesn't care. He's holding the rod for us every time. And we, we draw away because we have this wrong understanding of who God is. But let's look at verses 7 through 14 together. Let's look at verses 7 through 14. Remember, this is when Jesus is confronting the disciples after they've rebelled, after they've denied him, after they've run away. And here's how Jesus responds. The disciple whom Jesus loved, being John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and then he threw himself into the sea. Peter's not the brightest, brightest bulb, right? Puts his clothes on to jump into the water. Okay, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many fish, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them. And he took the fish and gave it to them as well. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was, after he was raised from the dead. Notice how Jesus responds. Even after they run away, he responds with such grace. That's what we're seeing in this passage. And that's our second point. We have to trust that God is gracious. We have to trust that God is gracious, even when we fail. Notice the different things that Jesus does. First of all, who's the one that initiates the reconciliation? It's Jesus. <laughs> He tracks them down when they're trying to run away. He goes to their beach. He calls out to them and he invites them in to have a conversation with him. But not only that, even while they're disobeying, even after they've just had a terrible night of fishing and caught zero fish, what does Jesus do? He gives them a miraculous haul of fish, 153 to be precise. Jesus is showing that even, even when we are faithless, he is still faithful to take care of our needs. So first of all, Jesus shows them grace that they don't deserve. The second thing, 
Notice who cooks breakfast for them. It's Jesus, right? Jesus is the one who gets the fish. He starts the charcoal fire. He cleans the fish. He cooks it up. He brings the bread and the fish, and then he gives it to them, right? Jesus, Jesus is the one that cooks them breakfast. After a hard night of work, they're probably starving. They're super hungry, and Jesus recognizes that they have a physical need, and what does he do? He jumps right in to take care of that need. Even though they had been acting like enemies and they had denied him, he, he still loves them. He still serves them. And that's the third thing. He didn't just cook the breakfast. It says he serves them. He takes the fish, he takes the bread, and he goes around as their waiter and gives them food. How'd you like that? The man that you just denied and he wound up dying for you comes and serves you breakfast. Wow, how humbling that might have been. But Jesus is showing just like on the night of the last supper, he continues to be a Lord who is gracious and loves to put the needs of other people before their own, his own, and to serve them. Now, I imagine this is not the response the disciples were anticipating. Jesus showered immeasurable grace on their lives. And grace is God giving us gifts that we don't deserve, like his forgiveness and his love. And here, even physical things that Jesus gave them. I'm, I'm guessing that the disciples were expecting Jesus to be livid with them. They're expecting Jesus to take them behind the proverbial woodshed for some discipline, right? They're probably expecting Jesus to respond just as the prodigal son was expecting his father to respond when he was originally thinking about going back. He thinks that the father's going to demote him. He's going to be disappointed in him. He's going to have to be kind of a, a slave and work his way back up the ladder. But how's the father respond to the prodigal son? He hugs him. He embraces him. He clothes him. He gives him a ring. He throws a party. He's so grateful that the son has returned. That's what Jesus is doing here as well. He welcomes them back in with grace on top of grace. I think of what John writes in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The cleansing power is there if we just run to Jesus. And notice what Peter does. He runs to Jesus. When Jesus confronts them, when he shows up on the beach, when Peter realizes, uh, I need to stop running away from Jesus, he's the first guy to plunge out of the boat. Uh, you know, maybe not the most intelligent way to do it, but he, it doesn't matter. I love his energy. He just jumps into the water, dives over, because he wants to be near Jesus. And that's what happens to us as well. When we understand the graciousness and the goodness of our Savior, we don't want to hide from him. We want to run to him. We want to go to him. We want that cleansing and that forgiveness that comes through confession of our sin. But we have to fight against a very real spiritual enemy that whispers lies into our head all the time. And Satan's lies sound a lot like this. You know, God feels nothing but disgust and disappointment when he looks at you. How do you think you could ever go to him? He doesn't empathize. He doesn't sympathize. He doesn't understand what you're going through. You're so so, so a failure in God's eyes. You can't ask for forgiveness. Or Satan comes along and says, you know how many times you failed in the same area? <laughs> Three strikes, you're out. You ran up a test. God's grace is done. You're done with that. No more. He's sick of you. Or maybe you think, I can't go to Jesus yet for forgiveness because I need to clean myself up a little bit first. I need to do some major penance. I need to do some stuff to try to uh, brush myself off and, and look a little bit better before I go to him and maybe somehow I can earn back his forgiveness. But those are all lies straight from the enemy. 
the gospel confronts every last one of those lies. First of all, no one's beyond God's grace. It tells us in Romans 10, 13, for everyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I don't care what mistakes you've made. I don't care what sin is in your past. The Bible clearly says anyone can have access to God's grace if they come to him with repentance and faith. Second, there's no limit to God's forgiveness. 1 John 1, 8, 9 doesn't say, uh, 1 John 1, 9 doesn't say, if you confess your sin for the first time, he's faithful and just to forgive it and cleanse it unto all unrighteousness, right? There's no limit on the number there. No, if we truly come and repent and confess, there's forgiveness. And then Jesus never told people to clean themselves up first before they come to him for forgiveness. I think of the tax collector who was at the temple and he was humbled and he was on his knees and he was beating his chest and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then the Pharisees were the ones that were praising themselves and lifting up how they tithe and how wonderful they are and giving God the resume. And Jesus says, it's the man who's down on his knees and understands his need for forgiveness that went home justified that day. We don't, we don't do anything. It's all what Christ has done for us. So what's the application for us tonight from that? Remember that we serve a gracious Savior. So if you've been carrying around a weight, the chains of sin, the chains of guilt and shame that you have not been able to shake, you've got a package, you've got burden on your back that is crippling and you don't know how to get rid of it, you can give it to Christ. And he is the only one that has the power to take that away. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus is the only one that says, if you are weary and heavy laden, come to him and you will find rest, for his yoke is easy. And Peter was able to find both freedom and forgiveness that night by confessing his sin, that morning rather. And we see that in verses 15 through 17. Let's, let's look at that. Let's look at how he finds forgiveness and freedom from his darkest hour. It says this, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to Peter a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? At this point, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You're omniscient. You know, you know it all. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. At the end of verse 19, after a little bit more comment, commentary by Jesus, he says, follow me. Follow me. After breakfast is finished, Jesus grabs Peter and ushers him away and says, hey, we're, we're going to have a one-on-one -on -one walking on the beach together, right? So they walk away and Jesus starts to have a conversation. And Jesus teaches us that the first thing that we need to do to get over our failure, to get over the mistakes that we've made, we have to expose the sin. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's exposing the sin that Peter needs to repent of. And he does it with a laser, a laser sharp question. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? With one word or one question, Jesus takes a surgical knife and cuts Peter right open. He cuts right to his heart, to the sin, to the problem. The first thing that has to happen is that sin has to be exposed. And notice Notice what Jesus calls Peter here. What does he call him? Simon, son of John. 
Jesus never calls Peter Simon in the book of John, other than before he's a Christian and now. And what's Jesus saying to him? He's saying to him, hey, Peter, you're acting like you used to before you were saved. You're acting like the old man that I saved you from. Do you want to get back to being Peter? It's one of those Snickers commercials, right, where they turn, turn into monsters when they're hungry, right? And then they say, eat a Snickers, you're not yourself when you're hungry. Jesus is saying to him, hey, Simon, you're, you're not yourself when you got sin in your heart. Have forgiveness and get back to being Peter, right? Second, question, second part of the question, he says, do you love me more than these? What's, Jesus, what's the more than these here? I think he's pointing back to the other 11 disciples, the other 10 disciples at this point. And he says to them, or says to Peter, you still think you love me more than they do? He's humbling them a little bit. Because what did Peter say on the night in the, uh, on the Mount of Olives? He said, even if they all deny you, I never will. I love you more than they do. And Jesus says, do you love me more than they do? And Peter doesn't say yes. He says, yes, I love you, Lord. But he's learned his lesson not to say, I love you a lot more than those guys. And then notice, notice the third part. How many times does Jesus ask the question? Three times. Simon Peter, or Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The third time it says Peter was grieved because at that point, he's coming face to face with his failure. What had he just done three times just a few weeks earlier? He had just denied Jesus and said, I don't know the man. Jesus is making him own his sin and come face to face with it. And you better believe that was painful. He said it would grieve him. It does. Coming face to face with our failure, that is hard. It takes courage. It takes boldness. Peter was deeply grieved. Jesus wasn't letting him off easy. That was part of the discipline process. But I love Peter's final response in verse 17. He pleads to Jesus' omniscience, and he says, Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you. And what Peter is saying there, he says, I know I haven't been living like it. I know my life hasn't reflected it. I know I've made mistakes, but you know me. You know my heart. You know that I still love you above all else. Jesus, you know me. You know that I love you. And when Jesus looks at Peter, he knows that's true. And we know this by his response to Peter each time. What does he say? Feed my sheep, tend my sheep. Feed my lambs, right? He, he, each time he gives him a commission. So what's going on here? Jesus is forgiving Peter. And he's showing that true repentance, like what you're doing right now, it leads to restoration. He says, I'm, all, I'm cleansing you from your sin, but I'm also calling you. He says, Peter, it's time to get back to being a fisher of men and a shepherd of my sheep. Put down the nets, put down the boat, and get back to following me. That's what true repentance looks like. So in this last section, we see our last point. We need to respond with the three R's. I've said this before, but it's so helpful, so I want to remind us of it again tonight. Remember, repent, redo. Remember, repent, redo. Remember. First, we need to remember. Jesus says to him, do you love me, Peter? He's reminding Peter of Peter's deepest love. He loves Jesus. Peter's, or Jesus is reminding Peter of that. You love me. Don't forget it. So many times when we first come into a relationship with Christ, we know we love him. 
or we're excited, our life is transformed, our life is being turned upside down, we're energetic, all these things, but what happens over time? The fire of our love for Christ starts to diminish and fade, distraction and sin can enter in. And Jesus says, you gotta remember your first love. Remember your love for me. And then second, he says, you need to repent. You need to repent. That's what he's forcing Peter to do. Repentance is a 180 degree turn which means Peter's been chasing after his old lifestyle. He's been running away from Jesus. He says, Peter, if you want to be renewed in your relationship with me, you got to turn away from your sin and you got to look at me and follow me again. You have to have real repentance. Confess your sin and change through my power, through my spirit in you. Allow your life to look different than it did. True repentance. So my question for us tonight is, what are the things in our life that we need to Repent of. So that as Jesus did with Peter, where he took Peter's sin, he took his denials, he took his biggest regrets, he took all of that, he nails it to the cross. That burden is lifted, it's nailed to the cross, and Peter never has to struggle with that burden ever again. It's offered to us too if we repent and put our trust in Jesus. And then the third, redo. He says, you get another opportunity to do it right this time. Redo. He says, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to go back to being my shepherd. I want you to take this opportunity of grace to have a totally different response than you did the last time. So what are the things that we need to redo in our life? Maybe we need to confess a sin and get back to regularly serving at church. Maybe we need to confess our sin and get back to spending time in God's word every day. Maybe we need to confess our sin and get back to prioritizing Christian community. Maybe we need to repent of our sin and get back to being a witness in the workplace. What are the things we need to repent of and get back to the way, the things that we are called to do? I'm sure that after Peter's night of denials, he thought that his spiritual life could never recover. I am imagining he thought his glory days were all in the past and now he's just... He's just a washed up disciple. There's no chance of redemption. But through the power of Jesus, Peter understood that he could confront his failure. And because of that, after this, Peter goes on to write two books of the Bible. Peter goes on to help establish the first church. Peter goes on to die as a martyr for the gospel. He's one of the greatest comeback stories that you can ever hear. Tiger Woods has nothing on Peter, right? He's the greatest comeback story ever. But he realized that by understanding that even when we stumble, we have to refuse to run to sin. We need to trust that God is gracious. And then we need to remember our love, repent of that sin and redo our lives. So tonight, what are the failures that you need to stop running from and instead face with faith? You know, as I thought about that young adult that I mentioned when we were down in Mexico and he said, God can never forgive me. We talked about his sin. He confessed it. And he did all of these things. He took it to God. He asked God to lift that burden. He repented. He turned away from it. I'll never forget the response he had when he looked at me and he said, I can't even begin to describe the weight that's been lifted from my heart. I'm finally free. And that's what Jesus offers. He offers his freedom. Freedom that we can't find anywhere else. So tonight, how many of us there's something in our life that we need to repent of and get serious about. So as Sam is just gonna play an underscore here for a moment, I just wonder if we can go ahead and bring the lights down a little bit. If you just wanna bow your heads and 
I'm not asking you guys to come up to the front of the altar or anything like that, but I'm just wondering if someone tonight, just to make a commitment, you want to raise your hand and say, you know, there's some unconfessed sin. There's been something in my life that I've been running from that I just need to, I need to repent of and ask God to forgive me. I want that freedom. I want that hope. I want that forgiveness that Jesus offers. There's something that God's been convicting you of and bringing to your mind tonight. Would you just raise your hand and say that? That's something I want. That's something I need. That's something I want to pray for right now. Well, if that's you, if your hand went up, if there's something you want to pray for, you can pray by yourself, but I just want to pray right now as well and just talk to God about this. Father, I just want to thank you so much that in this passage, you give hope to sinners like us. You give hope to people who have failed time and time again, but we recognize that no failure is too big. No failure is too hard to overcome because you paid it all on the cross. When Jesus died and he said, it is finished, that was the end of our sin if we repent of our sin through your power and put our faith in you. So Father, those of us tonight that are carrying heavy burdens, I pray that they lay them down at the foot of the cross and they find the freedom and the forgiveness that only comes through the gospel. So Father, free us from that sin and free us to be the people that you want us to be. We pray these things in your powerful name. Amen.